I understand uh, Rick Trimble last week did a fair job in teaching Romans chapter 10. Is that correct? Now, Kathy, close your ears and you tell me what really happened. <clears throat> well, it's a real blessing to me to know that I, could, I can be away and that things just roll along and nobody misses a beat. And, uh, no, I mean, seriously, I, that's a blessing to me. And I thank God for men and women that uh, are mature and um, can uh, fill in. And, boy, it's just wonderful. But tonight we're going to take a look at uh, the 11th chapter, having talked last week some about um, the present condition of Israel. And we're going to talk now this week, or excuse me, last week um, we talked about um, the need for the nation of Israel to open their hearts to the gospel and the fact that they have rejected the gospel. But this week we're going to talk about how uh, Israel's rejection of the gospel opened the door for the gospel to come to us Gentiles and how God is not through yet with his people Israel. <clears throat> Let's begin reading at verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the, the, the divine response say to him? I have reserved myself for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed, to the knee, bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. Now this first section has to do with the fact that the present rejection of Israel by the Lord is not total. The remainder of the chapter has to do with the fact that this present rejection of, of Israel by the Lord and we're going to talk about what we mean when we say rejection. But the present rejection of Israel by the Lord is, first of all, not total. And then the remainder of the chapter talks about it's not final either. So the present rejection of the people of Israel by the Lord God is not total and it is not final. There are a couple of things that we're going to look at here in this first section. First, that there is a remnant of believing Jews. There always has been, there always will be. The second is that the remaining unbelievers among Israel, their hearts were hardened. And we're going to talk about why that is. Okay, let's be, go back to verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? I mean, because that's the, the natural question that would come after Paul's um, discourse in chapter 10 
talking about their rejection of the gospel. And so he anticipates their question. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Very emphatically, he says, certainly not. God has not done away with or cast away his chosen people. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And you'll remember that a couple weeks ago we talked about this whole matter of of God's foreknowledge and predestination and um, election. And I'm going to uh, refer to that again somewhat tonight. But before we get into it, let me just say that as we move through this chapter, this subject is going to come up again. And if you had some questions from our discussion of, of, those, of that doctrine of election a couple of weeks ago in chapter 9, um, let, let the Lord bring those back to your mind. And please, because we're going to take some time, please ask those questions so that we can see if we can answer them. We got quite a bit of response from our time together in chapter 9 regarding the doctrine of election and uh, I just wanted to be sure that everyone um, got their questions answered if, if they can be answered. So keep that in mind. Alright. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel saying Lord they've killed your prophets torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Now Paul makes a, an illustration here using Elijah. It's kind of a, it's a good one too. It's kind of pathetic. Here Elijah is he feels that he's all alone, that all the prophets of God have been killed and that he's the only one left and now they're after him and he's crying out to God and say, "God, if you don't do something pretty soon, you're not going to have anybody left." And God says to him, "You're so sure about that, huh?" He says, "I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He's not even talking about the women. God uh, is able to do much more than we give him credit for. And um, he always tends to have things under control, you know. Um, sometimes we, we pass on or we um, uh, transfer our limitations onto God you know if I'm stuck if I've run out of gas if um, if I don't have a solution to the problem then certainly God must not have one either but you know that isn't true God is never stumped he's never stuck you know he's never scratching his head trying to figure out what he's going to do next God is always in control and he responds to Elijah's plaintive cry by saying, wait a minute, I got it, got it under control. There's a remnant of those 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, verse 5, at this present time, right now, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't start worrying about the fact that God is going to uh, cut off his people or to go back on his promises and covenants because of their rejection of the gospel. God 
has a remnant. And that carries even to our day. You know, I read a statistic that blew my mind. It said that in a percentage-wise, uh, percentage there are more Jewish people that believe in Christ Jesus than there are Gentile people. On a percentage basis. That blows my mind. <laughs> There's 15, about 15 million Jews in the world. And of that number, the percentage of those who believe in Christ as their Messiah is greater than the percentage of the rest of the 4 billion of us on the planet that believe in Jesus. So let's not get afraid that God is unable to um, keep his promises and his covenants. God has a remnant. All right, verse 6. And if by grace, and he's talking about the fact that those who remain faithful have uh, received that position by grace. It's not by something they earned, just like none of the rest of us have received our salvation or our right standing with God by our works. And that's been the theme of this book, that the, the grace that we've come into the, the wonderful blessing of knowing the Lord and being free from the guilt of sin is not something we've earned. It's not something that we could earn, but something that has simply been given to us freely. And so it is that these elect, these, this remnant that survives to today is, uh, has been brought into the family of God not by works or because they were good looking or any other thing like that, but just because of the grace of God. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Now, let me explain this. Not that Paul didn't know how to explain himself, but something has gotten lost in trying to, to uh, translate what he was saying and what was written uh, in Greek to our English translation. He is saying that, you, that grace and works are uh, mutually exclusive. You can't have a salvation that's by some grace and some works. You can't have a mixture of the two. He said if God has caused these men to be redeemed by grace, then it is purely by grace and has absolutely nothing to do with their works. Absolutely nothing to do. Because if it has anything to do with their works, then it has nothing to do with grace. You can't have a mixture of the two. And you know what? Even after... Even after all we've walked through in this book, I still find myself at times wanting to try to earn my position in Christ. Have you found yourself doing that? I like, I, like I feel like I owe it to God to try to make myself worthy of the grace that I've received. You can't. There's no way. We could never earn it. And if if we began in grace but we maintain our position in, in Christ by works then it's never been of grace and if it's not been of grace we got nothing <laughs> you know what I'm saying and that's what Paul is trying to get across again those 
who have been preserved, a remnant of believers unto the Lord, have been brought into that position of salvation purely on the basis of a gift from God. It had nothing to do with their works. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they should not see and bow down their back always. When David is talking about their, their table becoming a snare, um, he's referring to the feasts and so forth. And primarily, the feast of Passover is in view because that it was the most important in terms of uh, messianic prophecy it uh, Passover speaks of the lamb slain for deliverance and uh, he says let their table become a snare to them and a trap a stumbling block a recompense to them the the Jewish people as a nation as as a whole rejected the Lord's table they rejected the the uh, communion with God offered by Jesus Christ in his broken body and shed blood and so now uh, prophetically David is saying let their table Passover which was only a foreshadowing of what Christ would do let that become a trap to them and a snare to them a stumbling block um, what's happened here is that those who and, and the nation as a whole the fan the family of Abraham as a whole has rejected Christ and so there has been a remnant that has been saved but by and large the nation as a whole has been rejected and it says here quoting from the Old Testament God has given them a spirit of stupor now here's where we come back into the um, doctrine of election You've got a, a, a nation of people, God's, God's people, God's chosen people. God saw Abraham and, and said, Abraham, follow me. I want, you to go, I want you to go and follow me. I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but follow me. Abraham was obedient. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I know you're, you think you're too old and everything, but I'm going to give you a son. And through him, all the nations of the world will be, will be blessed. Abraham said, okay. I believe you. And be, on the basis of his faith, on the basis of his believing and trusting in God, God declared him righteous. And from him brought into being the family of um, Jacob, the Israelites. And God promised them and covenanted with them in a way that God has not covenanted or promised with any other nation on the earth. They were special people now they rejected God's provision of the Messiah that he had promised they rejected the full uh, application of God's promise to Abraham which was that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed speaking of Christ but they rejected Christ and so now God has given to them what they've asked for they have said, we don't want Messiah, Christ. We don't want Christ. 
We don't want to see Christ as our Messiah. And so God has given them what they've requested. He has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now, when we were talking about the doctrine of election before, we had to face the question, is that fair? I mean, isn't that kind of cruel? For God to, to blind them like that? And we had to come face to face with the fact that, no, it's not even our, it's not even our place to ask that question. Because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He can do anything he chooses. And whatever he chooses is right. And as soon as we start to ask some questions, as soon as we start to question him, we are setting ourselves up as greater than him, as higher than him. We are saying that we are more moral than God. We wouldn't do that to people. And as soon as we do that, we are guilty of the sin of Lucifer. So we, we cannot call our God into question about his deeds. He is God. He is sovereign. And that, like I said a couple of weeks ago, what, what our problem is a lot of times is we, we, we're, we want to keep God at arm's length, you know. And so we want to know what God's going to do first. God, show me what you're going to do. Show me your plan. If I agree with it, if I think it's cool, then I'll, you know, I'm yours. If not, well, you know, then no thanks. But God is asking of us to trust in him. God so loved the world that uh, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. And the term being translated believeth has to do with uh, throwing yourself upon, clinging to, relying on, not standing back and saying, well, uh, you know, if, it checks, if your story checks out, well, you know, I'll, I'll believe in you. It's, here I am. I believe you. I trust you. You're God. And so that's first base when, it, when we come to this subject of, of um, election, foreknowledge, predestination. We've got to just trust God that he knows what he's doing. That he's a loving God. And that anything he chooses to do is right. Okay, and then the second part of this is that if God, if God chose to save some and not others, he has committed no crime. He has done a tremendous act of blessing and grace and love because he has taken some who deserved damnation and blessed them with salvation. And he has, all he's done is left the rest of them to their own fate what they've chosen. So if that were the case, that God just picked some to be called his children and others to not, he's not damned those people. They've already damned themselves. All he's done is take some of the damned and make them saints. So that's not something to get upset at God about. That's something to bless God for. And especially if you're one of those people that were damned that he's made a saint. Then it's time to really hoot and holler. So this, the, the beef that people have about God being unfair in this whole business of election is unfounded. 
First, because he's sovereign. Second of all, if what they're saying is true about God, all he's done is something wonderful, not something bad. But then the rest of the, the, this whole doctrine that really uh, brings it into focus is what we read about in, when we covered, went through the, the New Testament and read those passages of Scripture that deal with this particular topic and we saw that in every case, God's foreknowledge was always in view. And so, even here, the question is asked, has God forsaken or cast away those whom he foreknew? And so foreknowledge has a great deal to do with this doctrine of election in that God looks at a man, sees the, he sees his end from the beginning. He knows what's going to, what the decisions of that man's life are going to result in. And on the basis of what God knows, he predestinates and elects. He's not making a choice for the man. He's making a choice based on the man's choices as he sees them in the future. God's foreknowledge is something like our hindsight. We can look back and we've got wonderful hindsight. But there's nothing we can do about it. You know, we can't change the past, but we can sure see it plainly now. Well, God can see just as plainly what lies ahead of a man, but he's chosen, though he could, he's chosen not to change it. And so he looks at a man or a nation and he sees the outcome of decisions about him, about his, his ways, about his word. And he elects, he predestinates according to his foreknowledge. Alright, so there is a remnant. There are, are those that God has seen of the tribe and family of Abraham who will respond to the gospel and he has predestinated them to be his children. The others, he simply allowed to experience the fruit of their own decisions. So Israel's rejection, or temporary rejection by God, is based on their own decisions, but it's not total. There is a remnant. Alright, now we move into the section that talks about Israel's rejection as not final. Verse 11, I say then, have they, have they stumbled that they should fall? Have they gotten so far away from God that they are ultimately going to fall and be separate, for, separate from Him? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God just God always amazes me about how he's able to take situations and circumstances and work a thousand different things out of one little episode. And here we have a case of a wonderful plan that God is unfolding from the tragedy of Israel's rejection of him. They've turned their back on him. His children, his people have turned their back on him and yet, he's going to take their rejection and allow that to make the open door to the rest of the world for the gospel to come. And then, through their acceptance of the gospel, provoke his children to jealousy so that he can have them again. Now, that's incredible to me. But the Lord is incredible. If it had not have been for the rejection of Messiah by the Israel, uh, Israelis, by the Jews... You and I would 
unless you happen to be a Jew, would not know the gospel. We would not have an opportunity to come to know Christ as we have. As we, have. As we, we would not have an opportunity to come to know the grace of God like we have. So their turning away opened the door to us, but the gospel coming to the Gentiles is for the specific purpose of provoking his children to jealousy so that they may come back. Now if their fall, speaking of the Jews, is riches for the world and their future riches for the Gentiles, <clears throat> how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Now he, he sounds like a braggart there but what he's saying is I magnify my ministry or I try to make my ministry as visible as possible. The fact that I am a Jew of the tribe of Abraham or uh, of the family of Abraham the tribe of Benjamin I'm a Jew a Jew of Jews but I've turned to the Gentiles. I make that as visible as I can so that I might cause some of my brethren to be jealous. For if the first fruit, oh, excuse me, verse 15, for if their being cast away, the Jews, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Holy meaning separate unto God. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. I mean, God broke off those guys so that I could be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Let's look over quickly. Keep your finger there, but turn over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned." Now there's a warning sounded here that just because uh, you have been grafted in to the root of the family of God, God's people, just because you being a Gentile have been given the privilege of 
of, of being connected to the root, don't get proud about it. Don't start to wave your finger in the face of every Jew you see. Uh -uh, you blew it. Don't become haughty and high-minded, but fear. Have a healthy respect of God who is severe and good at the same time. He is just and loving right at the same time. That's hard for us to understand because we don't know how to be both of those things at the same moment. And yet God is. And God was severe and judged severely those who were in unbelief but showed goodness to those who were faithful and believing. And it, he says here, it, it really sets forth a condition. It says, if God, in verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. And that's what we read in John 15. If you abide in me, and I abide in you, you're going to experience the flow of the... Of the um, sap, the fruit bearing uh, process is going to go on. But if you don't abide, you're going to be cast away. There's a lot of people who promote this idea that somehow you, if you're not careful, you're going to slip through the fingers of God. You know, and, and this whole um, problem over eternal security comes into view here when we read passages like this. And that's why I've dwelt on it a little bit because you'll all have to deal with that question. Am I or am I not eternally secure by that? Meaning, um, once I have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and by faith have responded to him as my Lord, then am I guaranteed uh, a pass through those pearly gates? Uh, or, if somewhere along the line I blow it, can I be unsaved? Can I become unsaved? And that's the question that people beat each other over the heads with and, and all. Well, I really believe that we are, um, that God <laughs> is giving us eternal security, but at the same time is requiring of us responsibility and obedience. In other words, I have... I am eternally secure, but I also ha am a free moral agent all at the same time. I really believe that the scriptural posture on this whole uh, dilemma has to, is somewhere right dead in the center of those two extremes. Now Jesus said, nobody can pluck you out of my hand. You're not going to somehow fall through the cracks, you know. If God returns and I happen to be sitting in a movie theater, I'm not going to go with them, you know. This kind of a thing. You, you don't have to be walking around always, you know, prayed up, just in case, you know. Well, let's see, I, I don't really know if I've done anything wrong, but just in case, Lord, uh, forgive me. You know, I, I want to make sure that I'm always right. That's a terrible bondage, and that's not what the scripture invokes that we're running around afraid all the time that we're going to lose our salvation. I don't think you can lose it. You are eternally secure 
if, if you've responded to Christ in faith. You are secure in that. You don't have to worry about somehow being, somehow getting left out or slipping through the cracks, like I said. But on the other hand, simply um, acknowledging Christ as your Lord doesn't uh, remove your responsibility to um, obey Him, to follow Him, and if you, I believe that if you are capable, if it's possible for you to come to a point in your life after having known Christ where you decide as a free moral agent that you no longer want to be a child of God, I believe you will not be. Because I don't believe that um, eternal security suddenly wipes out our free moral agency. I believe the two stand side by side all the time. But in my free moral agency, I choose to be eternally secure. I choose to be eternally secure in Christ. You follow me? Hold on to those questions too, okay? Verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is all able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a, a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You know, I love that because there is somehow in the mind of God a plan about this age that we are in. That there is going to come a, da a day, a moment, a time when this age is fulfilled. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I believe that there is going to be a day when the last... Gentile is, has the opportunity to respond to Christ and when he does so it's going to be all over a new age will come in the age of God's once again dealing with his people Israel there is a hardening in part that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, aren't you thankful for that? Even so, or excuse me, skipped ahead, verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also who have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody here? 
Or who has become his counselor? Any of you been been hit up by the Lord for some advice lately? <laughs> or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Any of any of you is God in debt to you? Uh, you know. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, I've gone over a little bit, but let's see if we can handle some questions that you might have regarding those two things. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of um, eternal security. Don't give me too hard of ones. Okay. <laughs> Let's me off the hook. You know what? You can bat yourself in the head to your unconscious over these things. But really what it boils down to is the fact that God is God. He's a lot bigger than you and I are. And God can be can give, give to us eternal security and um, free moral agency all at the same time. God can can um, elect and give men responsibility all at the same time. God is God. And once you realize that, it'll save you a lot of grief. <laughs> Just love and accept God and, and follow Him and obey Him and it makes life a lot simpler rather than setting yourself up as His counsel or His advisor 